Alright, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have a Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. I missed you guys last week. Um, I was at a uh, retreat. Usually when I'm gone, I think Michelle said it, I'm not on vacation. Uh, at the Bahamas somewhere. Uh, so last weekend I was speaking four times in a couple days. Uh, and so uh, I'll be honest, I'm still running a little bit behind. Um, it was an exhausting weekend, physically and spiritually and emotionally. I mean, it was just... Um, it was a lot, uh, but Michelle did an excellent job, I think, uh, walking us through Hebrews 11. It's always a weird thing uh, when I'm gone. Uh, I'll preach here about 80, 85% of the year, um, and when you have a guest speaker, I mean, you, it's kind of a weird thing because you don't want them to do too good, right? Uh, I mean, you want... Uh, <laughs> and then usually what happens is the guest speaker will go, I mean, a little bit shorter than I normally go, and so I come back, and it's like the bear of bad news, right? Everyone strap in, DVR the game, because Mike's back. Um, but Michelle actually went uh, longer than I averaged last week, and so I was thrilled, man. I'm coming back, and y'all are going to, today, y'all are going to be like, 40 minutes ago, felt so short. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Uh, but I'm glad to, to be back with you, and uh, thank Michelle for, for filling in for me. Um, at this retreat last weekend, uh, I went to uh, speak at, for a high school group up in a church near Spring, um, and it's one of the, it's a weird kind of situation. I, I used to do more of this kind of stuff. Uh, I've kind of slowed down a bit. Um, but it's weird because you're there. and I, So I've got three days-ish, two and a half days with a group of kids. And I want to invest in them and I want to help them and mature them and uh, just kind of throw an assist to the youth pastors and the leaders that are with them day in and day out. Um, but I'm, I'm not totally convinced that that kind of venue is the best way to do that. Um, and so I'm there and I'm like, how's the best way that I can speak truth into their lives and I can help them and just utilize my time uh, there? Uh, and so like, I mean, it's weird. It's a weird deal when you have like a session, a worship session. So the band's playing and it's real good. And then I get up and speak and it's real good. Um, and so I, you know, we, we break and I'm like, look, guys, tonight we really need to dig into our hearts, into where we are. And we need to really repent and grow close together, all those things. And then it's like. And be back here in 30 minutes because we're going to play a game uh, and just kind of go all out. And it's, so it's this weird, like, really focused, but we're going to have a lot of fun and there's something, like, right in front of you. And so the whole weekend I'm, I'm wondering, like, how do I best help them on their, their walk, on their, their faith um, kind of journey towards Christ? Um, and I'm, I'm noticing, I mean, there are certain youth and certain just people who just are real comfortable. I mean, just real, I mean, things are going well for them. It's hard to really speak into someone's life like that. I mean, if you don't really, if you're not aware of your need for something, you're not, I mean, really going to be up for change or be up for, or those kind of things that the Lord often wants to do on our hearts. Um, and then there's, I mean, there's the opposite spectrum, both of the retreat and I think with you and I, uh, which is people who are just really struggling. I mean, who are just really kind of in the midst of kind of some dark things, um, some real weighty things. I met a, a kid this weekend, this past weekend, uh, he's in high school, obviously, um, he has, he's in a real dark place. He uh, has been struggling with an undiagnosed sickness for 18 months now. Uh, so they can't kind of figure out what it is. He's in a lot of pain. He's on all kinds of crazy medicines. Um, and it's starting to really do a number like on his mental um, just reality. I mean, so he's really struggling with depression, really struggling with doubt. Lots, lots of questions, things like that. Uh, he confided in me. Um, I mean, just a real hopeless situation. So it's actually very similar to what I went through in high school. And so it was, it was a real God thing. We were able to talk a lot during the weekend, uh, pray together a lot, and things like that. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, I'm always wondering this. I'm wondering if our theology, if the way we think about God and the Christian life can hold things like that together. Like if we can hold a Christian, someone who's following Jesus, existing in just kind of this darkness with really no way out. I mean, what you don't. 
here's what I've learned. You don't, you don't give cliches to people like that. I mean, you don't. You don't give them a formula. You don't say these three steps and you're out of it. Here's what I say. I, I quote Churchill, and I hate quotes or little cliches, but this is my one I got. If you're going through hell, keep going. I mean, that was my advice to him. You've got 18 months of this thing behind you. You don't quit now. Like, you keep going. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you when it's going to stop. I can't give you any cute little answers. I tell you I've been there. I can tell you who God is. I can tell you keep going. But what we are comfortable with in kind of our Christian subculture is the real pretty, pretend, makeup, plastic face, right? Where everything is just really good um, and really comfortable and really pretty and, and everything's taken care of and really neat and put together. Um, and you've got dangers on both sides there. Now, if that is the case, again, it's going to be hard for you to really follow after Christ. I mean, we've talked about this. Comfort is a dangerous thing. And then, I mean, on the other side, if you're in this kind of dark, dark place, it's going to be hard for you to follow after Christ. You're going to have these questions, these doubts, these distractions around you. Um, our text this morning, we're in Hebrews 12, we'll pick up in verse 1 here, um, is going to transition out of what we've been doing for the past four weeks, which is this kind of list of heroes of the faith. Um, and so it's gone through all these different heroes of the faith, and we're going to switch here in 12 into like his pastoral plea, his pastoral exhortation. So this is now what he's going to say to Christians, to people following Christ, about how they should follow, about the steps and the things that they should do and that they should pay attention to and that they should be aware of. Um, so he's going to, I think, again, talk to us about, you know, what are the next steps? What do we do if we're in a dark, dark place, if we're in a comfortable place? What's his pastoral advice to us who live in a dangerous world, whether it's from things that seem dangerous or don't? So we'll pick it up in 12.1. Um, this is a really famous part of Hebrews, um, possibly one of the, the more famous ones. We'll read our, our, on our plate this morning. We've got the first 13 verses, okay? 12.1, and we'll read through, okay? Therefore, remember we just, I mean, the floodgates had opened up. <coughs> faith, 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 faith. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained 
by it. Okay, we're given an analogy here for this life of faith. And the analogy we're given is of an athletic contest, of a foot race, okay? What he's saying here is the Christian life following Jesus, it's like this long distance race. And he sets it up here with this language, let us run with endurance, let us not grow weary or faint-hearted, let us strengthen our knees, let us run, let us run well, let us run fast, and let us finish the race strong. This, this analogy, this picture, this word painting, that you and I, as we follow Jesus, it's like we're on this long-distance race. Um, now, back in this time, um, the Greek people who had all these different competitions and games and Olympics and all these things... They thought of the foot race as one of the, if not the, most distinguished athletic competitions that you could partake in. Um, It was not only a struggle against other people, not only are you competing against other people, but the way that kind of running works, I mean, you're really competing against yourself, too. Not only past times, but but even just, I mean, self-discipline to keep going, to to train yourself, things like that. Um, So it was this real noble thing. Um, In most of the games, the foot race was the first event. Um, so that if you could not say the whole time, at least you got to see the foot race. Uh, it was also kind of the celebrities of the, the time uh, were usually the people who, who raced, were usually the people who, who run. Um, it was the longest event by far. And so Hebrews now takes that, takes an analogy, a situation out of the realm of sports, which was just as big back then as it is today. And he says the Christian life, it's like we're on this long distance race, which naturally involves these struggles, these temptations. This pain, this suffering. I mean, already with just this analogy, we are outside of the realm of kind of our Christian subculture. Which would say that, again, we we want life to be pretty. We want life to be smiles. We want life to be real comfortable and to fit real nicely into this box that we can wrap up. So I think, I mean, if you look just the past 15 years at kind of the top selling Christian books... You're not going to find this message, that the Christian life is like a race where sometimes you don't want to keep going, where sometimes you don't know if you can keep going, where sometimes you're out of breath, where sometimes it hurts, where sometimes you can't see the finish line. Instead, what we would rather have is kind of the Christian life is like you're skipping and frolicking through a field, and there's nice music around you, and you're smiling and with your friends, not that you're sweating and out of breath and you're blistering. But just, a lot of times that's what the Christian life is like. It says, with all these dangers around us, let us run, let us run fast, and let us run well. Now, we've got to be careful here, um, because anytime the scriptures use an athletic reference, there's this temptation to apply it to us. Uh, So, I consider myself an athlete of sorts. Um, I played ball in my day. Um, So, I was just yesterday hanging out with some friends, and we were watching a football game, um, just having a good time. Uh, We decided after the game to go outside and uh, play some basketball. Um, which was a lot of fun for 15 minutes. Um, and then I was, I mean, I was dizzy, I was out of breath, I was panning. Uh, I mean, I'm like getting on one ready because I'm done. Um, and I'm just reminded um, there's a huge difference between me and what we would call by definition an athlete. Okay? Um, now, when the scriptures are talking and making athletic references, they're not talking about your rec team. They're not talking about, you know, what you do as a recreation. They're talking about a professional athlete. So even, I mean, some real all-star in, in middle school or high school is on a much different level than, you know, an NBA player or someone in the major league baseball or, or someone um, who plays for, you know, an NFL team. Regardless of what you think about sports, regardless of whether you think, I mean, they're just so overpaid and they're clowns, whatever, um, their lives revolve, for the most part, around their sport. 
They eat what they eat because of their sport. They spend the time, they spend their time how they spend it because of their sport. They structure their day. Their whole lives are kind of organized around it. So that's the kind of metaphor that we're getting here. Not like, well, I like to pick up a basketball and I can play for a few minutes and it's pretty good. But no, you're an athlete. This is what you do. You run races. And so every part of your life is organized around this. And he says, let us run it well. So he's going to give us some things. How do you run it well? And in particular, I mean, we could call ourselves, um, in a sense, faith athletes. So I'll give, you, I'll give you a little bit of athleticism here. But it's faith athleticism. He's saying what will get us to the end for the last four weeks has been faith. Trusting God. Responding to Him. Now what does that look like on the track? What are some things we need and we need to be aware of as we run and run this race well? Well, he'll give us a couple. The first one here is we need encouragement and we need examples. We need encouragement and examples. So let's go back to verse 1 here. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Very interesting um, idea being painted here for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The idea here is that we're in a stadium and we're running, right? This is the controlling metaphor for this whole passage. We're running a race as professional athletes. And there's a stadium of people cheering. And it says... We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, so great a cloud of witnesses. Now what he's referencing here is the people that we've just been talking about in this past chapter. These old men and women of ages past who have had faith and have run well. And he's saying here, we've got all these people, these heroes of faith who are cheering us on. Who have done it, who have finished strong and who beckon us to the finish line. Now, throughout history, um, some have taken this idea a little more literally than maybe it should. Um, and so the idea is probably not um, that, you know, Noah and Moses are watching us real closely right now. You know, they're betting on us. Uh, Mike's going to finish strong. I know that. Uh, we're, we're working on him. Um, some have taken this kind of idea to say, you know, maybe we should pray to the saints. Things like that. Um, really, though, what he's getting at is kind of twofold. First is you get encouragement by seeing someone who's finished the race. I mean, it's an encouraging thing, especially in a life where sometimes, again, if we're honest, we go, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I just don't know if I'm getting there. It's encouraging to see people who've gotten there. It's encouraging to see people who have died strong, who have finished the race. And then second, we have an example. I mean, we can see the faith that Noah had and Abraham had and Jacob had and Gideon had. And we can go, what was happening there? What were they thinking there? What were they trusting in God about there? I mean, that's what we've been doing for the past four weeks, is looking at these heroes of old and being encouraged. He says, as we're running, we've got this huge cloud of witnesses behind us, around us, cheering us on, urging us to the finish line. And then in verse 12, he gives kind of another pastoral exhortation here. Therefore, my congregation, he says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We've also got not only these kind of dead men who still speak to us, but we've got a community around us. A community of faith that urges us toward the finish line. Whether it's a leader, a pastor here, or just the people around us. This is what he means in chapter 3, verse 13, when the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, as long as it's called today, exhort each other. So that the deceitfulness of sin might not harden your hearts. 
He says, you've got this community around you, and you need to encourage each other. You need to stir each other up to love and to good works. You need to connect to each other. Um, uh, has anyone seen, maybe just came out uh, not too long ago, Warrior? Anybody? A couple? Okay. Uh, it was, I enjoyed it. Um, but So you've got kind of, it's kind of the underdog, you know, fighting, like... Um, similar to Rocky, in a sense, everyone's seen Rocky. If you haven't, why are you here? How did you get out of the house? Uh, you need to see Rocky if you haven't. Um, but in all those type of movies, you have kind of like a training montage, like the big dramatic, like they're training, they're getting ready for the big fight or the big sporting event, whatever it is. Um, and usually when they do that, the first thing that happens is they find a trainer. They find a trainer. They find someone to walk them through it, right? So Rocky finds Mick. Okay, you following me? Yeah? You should be. Mickey? All right. Rocky finds Mick, the guys in Warrior, they get a trainer, whether it's their dad or a friend of theirs. But there's something about having to perform and having to run well or having to do a sporting event that makes you kind of need other people. It makes you need other people to help you, to train you, to point out what you need to do, what you need to do better, what you're doing well already. And we, we've talked about this. I don't think Hebrews could imagine us running a race without other people. Now, some had tried in this congregation. They had stopped meeting together, thinking they could just run on their own. And he's going, what are you doing? You're not, you're not going to run well. You're not going to finish strong. They'd stopped meeting, and then some still meet. They still meet, but, but they just never even formed those deep relationships. I mean, you can, you can come to Sunday mornings your entire life and still not have biblical community. There's someone who knows you. Someone who urges you on. I mean, we say this all the time. You need two things from the people around you. You need encouragement and you need rebuke. You need both of them. And you need to ask for both of them. You need to invite people in for both of those. Because sometimes you need a pat on the back. And sometimes you need a slap on the back of your head. Right? Sometimes you just need to go, hey, keep going. Good job. Keep running. Sometimes you go, what are you doing? Pick it up. Let's go. And you're going to go, well, I, I don't feel good. He's like, I know. Let's keep running. Well, I don't know if I can make it. Okay, I know. We're going to run, though. He said, let's run well. So he says, look at this cloud of witnesses. Hear me as your leaders say, lift up your hands. As community, chapter 3, exhort one another. Stir each other up. And then the second thing he's going to tell us we, we need as faith athletes, something that will help us on, is wisdom and strategy. Wisdom and strategy. This is an important one. Um, we see this a lot in the scriptures, this idea of being intentional, thinking through our lives. So you go back to verse 1. These first couple of verses are just packed with stuff here. Since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, what's the action here? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. It's interesting here. I think there are two separate concepts. Things that weigh us down and then sin that, sin that entangles us. What he's referencing here um, is... The idea of stripping before the race. Um, so in Greek athletics, um, they were often naked for a lot of things that you and I probably not be comfortable being naked for. Um, and so that's just kind of the, that's how it was back then. Um, if you read the message, the message, uh, kind of this paraphrase of Eugene Peterson, it would actually say here that you need to strip. Um, and I was reading the message uh, in front of a group of kids once, um, and we were comparing uh, the ESV to the message in Hebrews. I was like, what do you all think? And, and the young man rose his hand and goes, the Bible just tell me to strip? I was like, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. But for the one time you'll ever hear me say this, if you obey the Bible, I'll kick you out. You're not going to do it here. Um, 
But the idea of stripping down, the idea is, I mean, think like you got this long rope. You're not going to be able to run with that on. It's going to hinder you. It's going to slow you. It's going to trip you up. And he says, hey, get rid of those things that are going to hurt you. They're going to slow you. They're going to keep you from running well and running fast and finishing strong. So one of the things he points out is you've got to fight against sin. The scriptures are very clear about this. This is the imagery used most about sin. We fight it. We wage war against it. We kill it. Colossians 3. So many of us are, are running or trying to run, but we've got all of these little heart issues that are just kind of weighing us down. We pick them up over time. Whether it's selfishness, thinking the whole world is about us and for us, whether it's greed, lust, pride, anger. I mean, whatever it is, you've got this. And again, I would say the heart issue is always the root of the problem. Your actions are just symptoms. Well, what's happening in your heart? Well, at some level, all of us have displaced God and we put ourselves or other things in that position. He's saying, hey, you've got you to recognize that and you've got to attack that. You've got to get that off of you. And so there's some people who walk through their whole Christian life trying to run, tripping up the entire way, going, why is this so hard? And it's so hard because you never sat down and said, what do you need to get out? That's going to trip you up. Get rid of it. Fight it. You might need help. You might be embarrassed, but get rid of it. It's less embarrassing for you to take the robe off than for you to trip every three feet. You're going to end up on YouTube. I'm going to laugh at you. Get, get rid of that and run. Run well. And then, he, I mean, he mentions a whole other category here. The weight, things that weigh us down. Not only, I think, do we fight against sin, but we give up anything that hinders And what I mean by this is there are some things, I believe, that are morally neutral or maybe even good that in the end will hold us back and then will hurt us as we follow, as we run. Um, So I think like media habits, time spent on TV, internet, that kind of thing, um, maybe are not morally bad. Maybe they're neutral. Maybe they're even good. But there are certain things, and again, this is very individual, that will hold you back from running and knowing and being close to the Lord. Um, So, sleeping habits. I mean, sleeping habits can have a huge impact on your life. I've been running for the past few weeks on like five hours of sleep. My legs have been hurting, and I've been kind of cranky and not getting along with people. Um, And I switched to like one extra hour, six hours, about two weeks ago. And it's made a world of a difference. I mean, it really has. What's this? I'm, I'm, you're trying to think through your life. What's weighing me down right now? I mean, this is what athletes do. They don't just live their lives and hope they perform well. They go, what do I need to do to be most effective? To be able to do what I need to do. Whether it's eating or sleeping or the relationships. What's weighing me down? Jonathan Edwards, this American theologian, was this real kind of type A person. Uh, we're wanting to think through everything and plan everything out. And so he took this kind of idea from the scriptures very seriously and would plan out like almost the minutia of his day. Like I'm going to be sleeping for seven hours and 42 minutes tonight. I'm going to get up and spend two minutes going over here, things like that. But what was happening is my was going, I'm not going to sleepwalk through this thing. If I'm supposed to be running and running well and pursuing Christ and living on mission, then I'm going to plan it out. I'm going to think through how this works best. What you've got happening in our culture, which we'll just speak for ourselves, is you have a lot of people trying to follow Christ, trying to run, and just tripping the entire way. I mean, it would be almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. 
I mean, just tripping, and they've got their robes. And what's happened is they're, they're trying to run, they're going, why isn't this working? But in reality, they've wrapped themselves in cords. And they've got all this stuff weighing them down. They've got all this sin entangling them. Um, working with special needs children, a lot of them can't run very well. Uh, whether it's just physical deformities or, I mean, just kind of this mental not being able to control um, get the signal from their brain to their legs. So what happens when they run, I mean, it's typically not like a very like, great run. Running is supposed to make you faster at some of them. It makes them a lot slower. I mean, they'd be better off walking. Now what happens is you've got a lot of Christians who spiritually are just kind of crawling. And they're trying to run and it's misfiring. And it's because they never dealt with the things that are entangling them. They just look, you want to run and you want to run fast and you want to run well. Think through what's around you, what's on you. Maybe you need to lose weight somewhere. Maybe you need to take this off or add this. And so that's kind of the defensive side. There's also an offensive side, um, which is we need to build up kind of our spiritual muscles. This is what he says again in, in verse 12. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make your path straight. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Um, it's no surprise that things like Prayer and reading their Bible and worshiping and community have historically been called spiritual disciplines, spiritual training, um, things that you do because you're supposed to and not because you feel like it. Um, Henry Nouwen wrote this book on prayer called The, the Only Necessary Thing. And then he says um, that prayer is a lot like a relationship and that it needs work. It doesn't just exist because you want it to exist. Um, relationships, if you don't work at them, they devolve. I mean, that's what happens in an active time, whether you want them to or not. Whether it's with your spouse or with just like a high school friend. If you don't work at it, if you don't communicate, if you don't get past certain things, it kind of fizzles out, it frays apart. And he says, we need to start thinking about prayer as very little to do, as, as, as not as connected to feelings as we kind of assume it is. So we pray when we feel like it, and we pray when we want to. He says, prayer is no different than work. Paul uses language all the time. He says, labor with me in prayer. The idea, it's hard, it's not comfortable. Do it because you need to do it. He says, labor with me in prayer. Work at it. Build up those muscles. Build up that endurance. It's a spiritual discipline. Um, one uh, person I was reading this week pointed out that um, you know, babies, when they come into the world, they cry. And one of the things that's happening there is they're filling up their lungs with air. Uh, I mean, they're kind of jump-starting their respiratory system. Uh, and if they're not crying, sometimes what a doctor will just smack them on the back. Try to, again, jolt them into doing that. Not because you necessarily want to hear that sound. I mean, that's an awful, high-pitched... I mean, the sound of a baby screaming is, like, not... I'm not even trying to be, like, crass here, but, like, kicks in everyone's parental, like, instincts, right? I mean, you want to protect that, you want to save that... Uh, so you hear that. It's not because you want to hear that. You want them to suffer. It's because why? You need them to work that out. You need them to expand those lungs. And he says sometimes, we'll see in a minute, suffering and pain comes into our lives so that we'll pray and read our Bibles and worship and have community and expand our spiritual lungs, start building up our muscles. Lewis, C.S. Lewis pointed out, often God doesn't speak to us through comfort because pain has to be addressed, he says. And so that's what God uses. Because what's the one thing you won't ignore? Pain, suffering, hurt. So that's his megaphone, Lewis says, to you and I, to our hearts, to our souls. 
So we build up our spiritual <coughs> muscles. This is the idea, again, behind <coughs> liturgy. We talked about this in chapter 10. Liturgy is this kind of scheduled out worship and meeting of a community of faith people. There's a reason, historically and today, you and I don't just meet when we want to. I mean, we could do that. I could say, you know what, text me, give me a call. When you're up to it, I'm up to it. Let's get together and worship. That's fine. But historically and right now, we say, no matter what happens, I'm going to be here on Sunday at 1045. We schedule it. Whether you had something on Saturday night or not, yeah. Whether you feel good or not, yeah. Whether you feel real holy and close to God or not, yeah. Why? Because we're going to come together regularly and we're going to pray together. And we're going to read the scriptures. That's one of the most powerful things there is about this regular church attendance that most people miss out on because they don't understand it. There's something about week in, week out, doing it whether you feel like it or not, that builds up your spiritual muscles. And it lets you run, and run well, and run fast. And so we pray, and we read the scriptures. We not only rid ourselves of things that entangle us, but then we we lift up our hands, we strengthen our knees. (laughs) And we run. Okay, so we need encouragement, examples, we need wisdom, um, we need strategy, we need to think things through, and then lastly, um, we need focus. We need uh, to focus in on certain things that will help us finish the race here. We'll go back again to verse 2. We're surrounded by witnesses. We're laying aside things. We're running with endurance. And then we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is really interesting because it seems to be saying here that Jesus was able to endure the cross because he had set before him joy. Because he had set before his eyes kind of the outcome of the suffering that was about to come. And you and I, again, are called to fix our eyes on the goal, on what's coming. This is a real basic uh, command to anyone who's running, right? Look at the finish line. Look at the finish line. So one, you don't get distracted. And then two, so you know where you're going. You know where you're headed. I mean, Proverbs makes this point in chapter 4. Ponder the path of your feet. All your ways will be sure. Which way are you running? Are you running towards the goal? Are you running towards the finish line? For Jesus, it was the joy of fulfilling the Father's work, of being back in this kind of love that characterized the relationship between the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. So he set that joy of completing the Father's work in front of him and was able to endure the cross. Here again, we step outside of the boundaries of evangelical Christianity, which can't handle a cross-shattered Christ. To borrow a phrase or an image from Stanley Hauerwas, our Lord, our Master, our God, shamed on a cross. I mean, that's that's our religion. That's our faith. I mean, how in the world would we ever pretend that, that we're going to get out without scars? That we're going to just, again, skip along through life? You know, it's, a, it's a race. It's a race, and there's pain, and there's struggle. We have a hard time dealing with a Gethsemane God. A God who would sweat drops of blood and agony in a garden before a cross. But this is the God, nonetheless, that we're presented with who sets joy before him, endures it, and is now vindicated, seated at the right hand of God. And that's the path laid out for us as we keep our eyes on the goal. The goal, eternal joy. We saw it a couple weeks ago, dwelling in the city of God, 
the city that he's preparing for those who have faith, who run to him. Revelation would say the city has no pain, has no suffering, has no tears. There's no death. There's no mourning. There's this very specific sound of someone who's grieving a death. Revelation says that sound doesn't exist anymore. There's no need for cancer units anymore. There are no more therapists. There are no more antidepressants. Doctors need to learn another trade. It's gone. The city that he's preparing, this is our goal. So he says, keep your eyes on that finish line. And then he hits on, I mean, you can see it here just by length. From verse 5 through 11, he, he starts trying to unpack to his congregation how they should understand the sufferings and the struggles that they're going through. So we need to focus on the purpose of our suffering. I mean, the real big question, once you stop ignoring the fact that there can still be real intense darkness in a Christian's life, is why? I mean, why is it there? What's God doing with it? How are we to understand it? I mean, if you look at biblically and historically, people who have followed Jesus have historically existed in some really dark, intense, weighty things. So Jeremiah the prophet, God comes to him and says, I want to give you power to destroy nations. And he, he speaks what God tells him to speak. And he gets kind of beat up every time he does it. And he ends up going, you seduced me, God. Like a woman. I mean, you told me what I wanted to hear. You seduced me. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe, verse 8, says, we don't want you to be unaware that things have happened to me, the apostle, that have made me despair of life, that have made me not so sure I wanted to live anymore. Martin Luther, father of the Reformation, we mentioned him last week, throughout his whole life struggled with these intense bouts of depression and anxiety, hopelessness. Mother Teresa, posthumously, we find out that she spent most of her life in darkness, not hearing from God. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us according to the text here. The text would in fact say if you're not being disciplined in some sense, if you're not being trained, if you're not being pressed in on and refined, maybe you're an illegitimate child. I mean, maybe you're not even to be considered a son or a daughter. So he says here, we, we understand the purpose of our suffering and that God is disciplining. He is refining. He is building and maturing and growing us like a father would to his son. He quotes for us here in chapter 5 and 6 from Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, where the proverb is saying, hey, don't, don't ignore the sufferings that come into your life. Don't ignore the hardships that come into your life. But instead, understand them through a good father who's in control of everything, who doesn't let one thing slip through his fingers without it being for your good, according to the text. God in the scriptures is not an ambulance driver, ever. An ambulance driver is someone who shows up on the scene and is surprised and tries to do damage control. In the scriptures, God is more likely presented as, as Jesus would do in John 15, um, a vine dresser who prunes where it needs to be pruned and who gives and grows where it needs to be given and grown. That everything that comes into our lives, good and bad, is there from the Father's loving hand to mature us into the children that we were created to be. So he disciplines us. He lets these things come in on us. First, it's a sign of his fatherly love. I mean, this is almost a scary concept. If you're not being disciplined in some sense, are you even a child? Is he even concerned with you right now? 
And then two, we can say it's a, it's a source of strength. James makes the same point in, in chapter 1, right here after Hebrews, and verse 2 through 4, he says, um, Rejoice. He says, I should be happy about any trials that come your way. Various kinds of trials. Rejoice because what they do is they refine you. What they do is they make you strong. They make you steadfast. And that will get you to the end. There's something about, and here's what I've noticed just through life. Here's what I was telling the young man I met this weekend. There's something about people who have gone through hell. That, I mean, they have this kind of deep character. They have this kind of steadfastness. They have this rootedness. There's very little that shakes them anymore. Good or bad. There's this kind of strength that's born out of a fire. That maybe can only be born out of a fire. And he says, when he's disciplining you, it's not pleasant for the time. He says that here. No one, no one thinks it's pleasant at the moment, verse 11. I mean, no one expects you to smile and go, yay. But what he's saying is focus. What's the purpose of it? What's happening here? Well, he's forming us. He's letting it, going to yield, verse 11, the fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So we need to focus on the goal. We need to focus on the purpose of our sufferings, of what has come into our life. And then lastly, we'll finish off here, maybe as the biggest point, we need to focus on our champion, Jesus. The classic example of faith. We've had all these heroes of faith, and finally we get to Jesus, the, the overarching, the great, the one who was faithful, who defines faith for us, who shows us faith, who purchases our faith. You would say faith itself is a gift from him through his work on the cross. So he says this, and maybe this could even be like kind of a heart of Hebrews, kind of one of the big points of Hebrews, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, other translations, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews has been saturated with who Jesus is, what he's done, with knowing him more, pressing in further to his work, to his glory, to his power, to his future. To looking at him, to fixing our eyes on him, to focusing on him. And there's this danger in Christianity where we think that what we need is advice, and what we need is self-help, and what we need is to try harder. When in the scriptures over and over again, what you need is to know him, and to see him, and to love him, and to worship him, and to be so captivated by him that you follow him at all costs. He says, fix your eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, purchasing you from sin and death and Satan and hell, who's now seated at the right hand of God. The, the one, the champion, the, the Greek word here for founder and perfecter, if you look at different translations, they'll all do these two words a little bit differently. He's a founder, he's a perfecter, he's the pioneer. This first word here for founder is the Greek word archagon. Um, you might recognize like arch ego there, arch agon, archagon, arch ego. Um, the idea is probably translated champion. And this is again from a stadium, arena, from athletic competition, the champion, the winner, the one who has done it, who has accomplished it. Who? Our champion, Jesus. Focus on him, the one who has arrived already in God's future. He's already gone through death into the new life, into a resurrection, into the city, who is now bringing that city back to us. And we fix our eyes on him who's purchased us, who has bought us, who has forgiven us. The one who has opened the way and has shown us the way. 
the scriptures are clear that um, the cross is not just some subjective thing that works on our hearts, but that something objectively broke in the world the day that Christ resurrected. They called it, in the early Christians, they called it this new creation. That when human beings now are filled with God's spirit, these realities and possibilities are open that have never been open before for people to run and leave behind and strengthen and pursue. That as he defeats death fully, finally, as he wins the war, you and I take off. And we're following him. We're following him to where he's gone before us as our trailblazer, our pioneer into God's future. The city that he has prepared for us. And so Hebrews, I think above all else, is going to say as faith athletes, as those who are running the race and trying to run strong and trying to finish well, we need to keep our eyes on him. If we, if we lose anything else, let's just keep our eyes on him. Everything else will follow. If we can focus in on who he is, if we can not get distracted by good things or bad things. If we can set him before us, as the psalm says, and, and we won't be shaken. So, so, so how do we then use faith? How do we run this race? Well, we've got to be encouraged and we've got to have people around us. Both people who have already finished, who are no longer with us. And then people who are with us, who know us and love us and can help us. We need to think sharply about it, wisely. We need to have a strategy. And we need to focus. See, the scriptures, they never try to tell us to conjure up these feelings or emotions. What they'll do, what they'll tell us is to remember truths. To think correctly. Truths about where we're headed. Truths about what life is, what God says about suffering and pain in the world around us. Truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so this is who we are. This is where we are. On a race, running. And the author, like a, a hero of old, is, is going, let's run. Let's run. Let's, let's, hey, strengthen your knees. Get that robe off. Let's run. Let's run fast. Let's run well. Let's finish strong. And you and I, to this day, are, are running. And the question is, are we going to run as those who are tripping over every few steps? As those who think they're alone? That's impossible. As those who have lost absolute sight of where they're going and why they're going and who's there? Are we going to run as those who, with all the abandonment and passion of, of someone who's committed their life to a sport, says, this is where I'm headed, this is why I'm headed there, and this is who's there waiting for me. So on a morning like this, with, with beautiful weather, we gather, and we focus our eyes on Him. And we sing, and we pray, and we read, and we take communion. And the call goes out to us as it did in here, the first century. Run. Let us run with endurance. Let us finish the race. By God's grace, we will. Father, uh, I thank you. Uh, for our time this morning, as always, I thank you for um, the scriptures that you've given us, um, your revelation to us. Uh, I pray that the words we say and the things that we do um, would not just be uh, taken lightly, would not feel empty to us this morning, um, that we'd feel, in a sense, the gravity and the weight behind them, um, that we would be encouraged and filled with who you are and all that you've done 
for us and in us and are wishing to do in us now, Father, that where we need to lay things aside, that you would give us the strength and encouragement to do that. Where we need to just be encouraged or maybe rebuked, that you would bring those people into our lives. And that where we need to focus our eyes on you, that you would allow us to do that. You would give us insight and clarity. We love you and we need you, Father. It's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen.